Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's not often I admit to being wrong, especially on air, but I have to admit that I've made some mistakes in my life, professional and personal, and particularly on the professional side. I made a movie earlier this year called How to Fix Democracy, which I blamed quote-unquote populism for everything that's gone wrong from uh, Trump and Bolsonaro to Orban in Hungary and so on and so forth. And we've had a number of shows, I think, over this weird summer of 2020 in which populism or quote unquote populism, whatever that word means, has come out as the problem child of democracy. It's the thing that's undermining representation and freedom and, and everything else that's so great or supposedly so great about democracy. However, I have just read a really powerful new book called The People Know by Thomas Frank. Uh, Thomas is one of my favorite writers. He's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas, uh, The Conquest of Call, and many other really interesting, important, counterintuitive books. Uh, and the book, and I'm not sure if uh, I'm being fair to it, Thomas will tell us, the book is essentially a defense of populism. Is that fair, Thomas? Yes, it is. That's about that's what about half of it is, and then the other half is a counterattack against the people who uh, who demonize it. And of course, as so often with your work, it's a book that begins in Kansas, where you began, and where you <laughs> where you often return for your most sort of controversial and provocative ideas. What happened in Kansas at the end of the nineteenth century that drives your history of populism? Well, they they invented the word. This uh, this word we think it's uh, you know just hand, it came down from the Romans or the Greeks or something and we can use it to mean whatever we want. But I was astonished to discover, not really astonished. I sort of knew in advance, but that it it that the word was actually coined um, by a bunch of political operatives in Kansas in the year 1891, and what they were trying to describe with it was almost exactly the opposite of the way we use the word today. It's kind of an interesting story. Yeah, and the story is, is rooted in the way you tell it in uh, poor whites and, and poor blacks essentially uh, forming a, a political coalition against both Democrats and Republicans. Right, the last great third party movement in US history. It was a, uh, the populist party. It was an effort to make it, build a kind of labor party for the United States, a party. So the, the Democrats and the Republicans were regional parties at the time. And the, you know, they went back to civil war loyalties and stuff like that. The populists said, no, let's build a class based on, or let's, excuse me, let's build a party based on a class appeal, on social class. So farmers coming together with workers, uniting working class people from all different backgrounds, although they did not use the phrase working class, they would say producers from all of these different backgrounds coming together against the other two parties. And they had some success uh, for a couple of years. And then, uh, as, as these things always seem to do in America, they uh, petered out or, and or were beaten, and that was the end of them. 
you call them the pups, or they were known as the pups. <laughs> yes. um, and uh, who, who pupped the pups, Thomas? <laughs> so they got, uh, first they got co-opted and then they got beaten. So they, uh, they, were, they were growing by leaps and bounds in the 1890s because it was a time when there was a, a depression, a lot like the 1930s. Uh, you know, there were big strikes. There was uh, the first ever protest march on Washington. Uh, these kinds of things were going on. And uh, the Democratic Party uh, swerved to their left and sort of co-opted a lot of the populist message. In particular, the populists were critical of the gold standard. And the Democrats uh, got on board with that. Their candidate, William Jennings Bryan, famously denouncing the cross of gold on which the Republicans intended to uh, 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 crucify mankind. And the populists uh, signed up with Brian's crusade. They said, okay, we'll get on board with that and uh, we'll join up with the Democrats. And then when Brian got beaten, the Republicans just came down on him like a ton of bricks. I, and I have a lot of fun in the book describing that campaign of 1896 where they beat him. After that uh, huge disappointment, the Populist Party basically fell apart, you know, arguing with one another. Uh, you know, they were, they were basically destroyed. And uh, the, 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 the members, the individual populists went their separate ways. Some went into the Democrats, some the Republicans, some the Socialists. All news is biased in some way. Reporters may add biased language consciously or unconsciously, but the outcome is the same. Bias in the news impacts how we see the world. Ground News is a new app that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. It's the first ever news comparison platform. Ground News collects data from over 50,000 news sources and runs real-time media bias tracking. Then, the coverage bias rating is visually shown alongside the story. For every story you read, you can compare how reporting differs across sources with different political biases and see if the coverage of stories skews more to the left or to the right. Ground News represents a larger movement of people who are fed up with traditional, highly politicized news. No one wants to be spoon-fed ideas or subtly influenced. Ground News gives the power to the people so you can make up your own mind. Want to learn more and try for yourself? Just head to ground.news backslash keenon and enter code keenon to get one month free of Ground News Pro. As an exclusive limited time offer, listeners of Keenon will get 20% off Ground News Premium membership. So what are you waiting for? Start judging the truth for yourself today. Once again, that is ground.news backslash Keenon and enter code Keenon to get one month free of Ground News Pro. You don't sugarcoat the pops, though. Um, you acknowledge that it was anything but a perfect movement, that there was elements of racism and discrimination. Um, yes. So, so let's not fall into that trap of, of, of arguing, or you, you suggest we shouldn't fall into the trap of arguing that, that the original American populists were in some ways perfect. No, that's right. And that's, that's exactly right. What I do, what is important to remember though, is that by the standards of the day, they were, they were less bigoted than the other, uh, than, than, than the other two parties. The, the Democratic Party in particular, you know, put Brian aside here, in the South, which was the great Democratic stronghold, the Democratic Party was the bulwark of, of white supremacy. That was what the Democratic Party was all about. And the Republican Party, for its part, 
was in, at the national level could be incredibly uh, xenophobic. And the populists were neither of those two things. I mean, they, individual members, yes, some of them were, were bad news, but their, their overall strategy was to try to bring these people together based on class interest. And they were real open about this. It was, that was, everyone knew that was their strategy and it was quite controversial at the time. The big division in your book in historical terms is this confrontation intellectually, politically, economically between populists and people who believe in, in a meritocracy. Um, why are populists and meritocrats on the opposing end of these ideological spectrum? So that's how I would describe it. So this is my own uh, homemade ideological spectrum. I, I'm not the only one to talk about it. You know, Jim Hightower, who's one of the last guys in American life who openly calls himself a populist, likes to say it's not left and right, it's, it's top and bottom. It's the people that have and the people that don't. It's trust, and, and, and you put it in, a, in a, and I think you may even be quoting uh, High Bottom here, you, you talk about uh, trusting in the averageness of the people, idealizing yeah. averageness rather than, than, yeah. than leader, than, than the people who are on the top. Yes, and, that's, and by the way, that's something that's very familiar to a lot of Americans of a certain age because they can remember the sort of culture of the 1930s, which was all about the common man, the nobility of ordinary people. And that was also sort of the culture of America during World War II, the sort of great, you know, when we were, when this country really rocked, you know, <laughs> when America actually was great. That was how we uh, understood ourselves and understood the world, you know, the, uh, it was the, the decade of the common man. But uh, you, okay, so to get back to your original point about the meritocracy, so what you see, the, 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 this tradition that I call anti-populism, which I first describe in the 1890s, although it obviously goes back much farther than that, is a profound suspicion of ordinary people. And the idea that when ordinary people get together in mass protest movements or in big groups or something like that, they behave in a pathological way. And you can't trust them. And, uh, you know, there's, they have psychological problems. They are, uh, you know, they, they, they lash out at intellectuals. They refuse to listen to their betters. But the bottom line is, is that ordinary people should not be able to call the shots in a country like ours. And that's the core message of anti-populism, which is that, you know, people on the bottom are on the bottom for a good reason, you know, and, and they have to stay there. And the idea that they can use the democratic process to tell their betters what to do is uh, regarded as an abomination. And, uh, and, I, and I study different instances of that attitude, different times when that attitude comes up over the last couple of centuries. Yeah, and as you argue, I think quite convincingly in the book, you're certainly not the first person to suggest this, is that populism ironically came to power under... FDR, who was the ultimate American aristocrat, maybe not meritocrat, yeah. but certainly aristocrat. This, uh, I don't know if he had a title because Americans don't have titles, but if they did, he would have <laughs> no, one. He right? did not have a title. No, he was just, a, you know, that is, he was one of those Dutch planters from, you know, the Hudson Valley. Uh, but uh, yes, as, as close to an American aristocrat as you can get. And he liked martinis, and he liked sailing in his yacht, and he liked collecting postage stamps and stuff like that. And it's the postage stamps. I love that 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 <laughs> that, that moment in the book because <laughs> I mean, who else but an aristocrat collects postage stamps? 
I collected them. I, was I bet nobody. Scout, I bet I... nobody collects postage stamps in Kansas, do they? <laughs> of course they do. It's an all-American hobby. <laughs> it's a, you know, and and it 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 became a big deal when Roosevelt was. Well, we're getting sidetracked here, but my dad grew up when Roosevelt was president, and uh, and and collected postage stamps. And one of the reasons was because the president of the United States collected postage stamps. And it was thought to be a good hobby for kids in the 30s. It didn't cost anything, you know, it was free. Average but, uh, people could do it then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyhow, yes, the 30s were the great heyday of, of populism in America. And this is not, it's not just thanks to Roosevelt who did talk with a, in an extremely populist way, talked about how we have forged a new relationship between government and the people. He used to talk about throwing the, uh, you know, the money changers out of the temple of our civilization, or the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. You know, use this kind of William Jennings Bryan style language. Uh, uh, anyhow, but behind him stood both the culture of the era, which was really the you know, this reverence for the common man. You think of the Frank Capra movies, the Orson Welles, the WPA art, uh, the popular front art, they used to call it, but also the labor movement. This was a period when workers' movements really were growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, you know, they tripled in size in the course of the 1930s, made and won all of these demands from corporate America, and in effect managed to build the American middle class. All of this in that decade. Um, you know, between Roosevelt and uh, and these other uh, powers. Yes, that and so that's, for me, that is the sort of the peak of populism in America. That also shows you what, what populism can do. And for me, that is the high point that we have descended from and never sort of made our way back to it. We've, we've, we were totally lost nowadays. Um, you know, you were going to have the Democratic Convention. It starts today even. And I'm sure they'll play Roosevelt's theme song, Happy Days Are Here Again. And I'm sure they'll have images of Roosevelt and they'll talk about it. But the Democratic Party has really lost the thread. They've forgotten why they are the party of Roosevelt, what he stood for, that sort of thing. And the Republicans uh, will also, you know, uh, when I was at the Republican convention four years ago now, I heard with my own ears Donald Trump talk about the, how he was going to save the forgotten man, which was a direct quotation from Roosevelt. They steal from Roosevelt all the time, this kind of fake populism that they indulge in. Um, so, Thomas, many people have written narratives about this shift from uh, the New Deal and the Great Society to a, a, a neoliberal world of inequality, which is corrupting modern life. But no one, I don't think, has focused on this sort of parallel ideological uh, conflict between meritocracy and populism. Yes. What has happened? It's since, hard for people to accept that. Yeah. What has happened, shall we say, since the 60s, since, since LBJ's Great Society, that has resulted in, 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 in the cult of learning, <laughs> in the cult of meritocracy, and the disappearance of the ideal of labor and populism from American political life? Well, look, a big part of it is political and a big part of it is economic. Um, and we know the economic story that the returns to, you know, that, that educated people are in uh, high positions all over society. And I mean, the, the, the gulf between them and the rest of us. And by them, I, I mean, I, I went to college, I, you know, uh, you're in Berkeley, California. I even went to graduate school once long ago. But what I'm talking about here are people who attend um, 
the uh, very elite universities in this country are slowly but surely becoming a kind of aristocracy to themselves. And this has, you know, this has been documented. And by and large, people think that there's something rational about this because they're more capable people. The SAT tests are able to find the, the ones who are, who are really more talented than the rest of us and single them out and pull them out and make them into a new ruling class. But a big part of the shift has also been political. It's that the Democratic Party, which was has since the 1890s has been more or less the party of working people in this country, gave up on that mission, gave up on the mission of the New Deal uh, in the late 60s and early 70s and decided that they were going to be a different party, that they were going to be a party of these highly educated people then coming off the elite college campuses, people like Bill Clinton, you know, who are protesting the Vietnam Barack War. Barack Obama. But, you call right. them the learning class. You I, no, they, that's, their, from... that's their term. That's the Democrats' term for them. They, they, so they're, well, they're, you they're, use it, though. In a, in I do a, use a, it. Yeah, I'm very sarcastic. Way. I know. I'm, I'm so mean. Because it's a ridiculous term. Think about it. You know, it's so, it's so mealy-mouthed. It's so like, oh, you know, the learning class. That's highly objective, isn't it? The class... It's like as if you have to take the SAT to get into it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm going to use that. That's actually a really good line. <laughs> but they, they, they use that term. The Democrats themselves use that term. And the shift is, you know, when they start talking about that, they're saying, look, we have to put organized labor behind us. We have to put blue collar people behind us. We have to identify, we have to understand that we're in this new post-industrial economy. And by the way, I don't have a problem with that. We are. That is true. The, the, the problem is this next sentence. Then they say, we have to embrace the winners in that new and you know post-industrial economy that we're in. You know, we have to turn our back on ordinary people, and we have to become the party of the uh, you know of what they call the learning class, the winners. And this is op this has made Trumpism possible. This is what makes it happen when the party of the left gives up on working people. By the way, this you know this is not only happening in America. This is happening all over the world. The Social Democrats in Germany, the uh, you know the various sort of left, center left groups in France, all over the place. This is happening. You 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 describe it as the liberalism of scolding. Uh, you don't yes. teach in the university, but again, it's it's hard to avoid this liberalism of of scolding that comes from within the university. Um, how corrosive do you think this culture is more broadly in political terms on America, the, the liberalism of scolding, the, the, what some people would call political correctness? I think it's extremely corrosive. Let me put it this way. You have a liberal elite, and I, I don't like that term, but I'm going to use it because there, you know, there is a liberal elite. There's also a conservative elite, of course, the Koch brothers, etc. But you have a liberal elite that believes that it is an elite because it is uh, made up of superior people, not merely um, because they got higher scores on the SAT and they went to better colleges, but because they're morally better than the working class, who they regard as deplorables in Hillary Clinton's notorious term, but there's many other similar terms out there. And so this is a ruling elite that is both economically an elite, but that believes it's also morally an elite. And this is a, I'm just, I am, I am, I'm here to tell you, Andrew, this is a delusion of the first water. This is a mistake and a blunder. And, uh, it, you know, there's a very good, you know, let me, 
just a caveat here, I think the Democrats will probably come out on top in November this year. I mean, Trump has been such a disaster. I don't see how, you, how, how he gets out of this by getting reelected. But that said, this is a form of liberalism that is, uh, that is, that is heading straight for disaster. To have a party of the left that, is, that regards uh, ordinary working people with, with contempt, uh, that's a recipe for catastrophe is what that is. I share your critique, perhaps even contempt of this learning class. But what about the, the people that you're speaking on behalf of? You, you mentioned that uh, the, the Democratic uh, Convention is just starting. The numbers this morning, the polls, I don't know whether we believe them, but they're generally fairly accurate. Whites with college degrees are 56 to 39 in favor of Biden. Non-college whites, 35 to 57. So it's, it's an absolute wow. reverse. Why has the white working class fled to Trump? Oh, man. Well, isn't that the, isn't that the great question? And we don't even have time to, to get into that. You know, I've been writing about this for 20 years. I know, but, so, but, 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 but is there really an excuse? Is, how can they possibly be supporting such a hateful character as Trump? Well, the first thing I would point out to you is that they know what a, they know what a bastard he is. Uh, they nobody likes this guy. People vote for him, but they don't like him. Okay, there are some, of course, some people. There's the hardcore that that thinks he's that thinks he's extraordinary and thinks he's this you know amazing t- truth teller or something like that. These people who are completely delusional about Donald Trump. But no, even the people who voted for him in 2016, I think a majority of them would say, no, he's not a good man. Uh, but they. Look, there's all sorts of reasons. There's there's bad reasons, uh, you know, racial fears, antagonism, that kind of thing. There's uh, slightly more rational reasons, which I would describe as the culture wars, um, which I used to think were completely delusional. Like, for example, the the liberal media critique, which Republicans have been talking about since 1969, but which is now suddenly kind of true <laughs> you know it wasn't true in 1969 but it is kind of true now and uh, and then there's 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 a lot of people who are you know come from places like Appalachia which is uh, formerly industrial and now is in a, com- a state of complete destruction and they want their lives back you know and Trump seemed to understand their problems and so there's I mean there's a whole range of of, of reasons for for voting for this asshole. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say, look, you, 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 you just take one of those or a couple of those things off the table. You make it clear that the Democratic Party believes in, in helping out. The, you look at a state like West Virginia. Let's leave Kansas out of it for a moment. I mean, because I've, I've been writing about this since what's the matter with Kansas. But you take a state like West Virginia, which was, when I was young, was not just democratic, but profoundly democratic, very, very liberal, went from Michael Dukakis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every uh, local official was a Democrat. And this was not because they were um, uh, you know, highly educated state where everybody went to Harvard. It was quite the opposite. It was because it was an industrial state where a lot of people belonged to unions. And even if they didn't belong to unions, they knew how important that was, sticking together, solidarity. Well, the Democrats lost those people. That state goes for, went for Trump in the most extraordinary way. And it's not because um, those people suddenly became bigots. I mean, some of them probably did. But uh, it, there's, a, there's a larger shift that's going on in this country and, you know, where, where the, the, 
that you and I have been trying to describe. How do you undo that? If you're in, if you're, if you're running the Democratic Party, how do you undo that? How do you short circuit that? The incredibly obvious solution is to be a party that cares about working class people again that says you know see you later learning class they've look they've got the the uh, the, the highly educated people who are uh, who are all there on the culture wars etc the democrats have got those people the people they need to reach out for now are the working class people who have deserted them in in enormous numbers how do you reach out for those people well if you're a party of the left it's incredibly easy let me tell you you know we're going to make it easier for you to go to join a union we're going to keep you from going bankrupt when you have to go to the hospital we're going to you know make sure that your job pays better we're going to make sure that you have health insurance right down the list uh there is a you know it's just not that hard to imagine what they might do and then you can do the joe biden approach by the way joe it's not like biden doesn't know about this biden's approach is that he is culturally there with with uh, with with blue collar voters and we're going to see i think it's i think he has a good chance of winning some of them back from trump at least in a place like pennsylvania or a place like wisconsin or michigan at least i hope he does yeah you 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 end the book with a degree of optimism about the Bernie Sanders uh, success or relative success. Uh, so you see Biden shifting towards the left, beginning to represent working people in America? I don't want to, I want to be, I want to be uh, real cagey about this. I don't, uh, but I think there's, it's possible. But at the same time, Biden does speak, uh, speak the language. And that's, that's, I think that might be Biden's saving grace. Look, Biden is not, you look at someone like Hillary Clinton, the Republicans had 20 years to depict her as this arrogant professional who didn't care about you. Uh, Rush Limbaugh started doing this in the 90s, you know, and uh, they haven't done that with Biden. Biden is not a hated man. Um, you know, I'm here in Washington, D.C. I've myself have never met Biden, but everybody you meet in this town has. You know, he's been around so long. They all know him. And here's the thing. People love this guy. They don't hate him. I've never met someone that really despises Joe Biden. And so while I uh, have profound disagreements about his record, I really don't like what Joe Biden has done as a U.S. senator. I think he has a lot to answer for. Nevertheless, he is the kind of guy that can, that, that can, he has a, he, look, let me put it this way. He has a chance with these voters. He has a much better chance than Hillary did. The thing is, what are the Democrats going to do after that? After he gets in, what are they going to do then? How are they going to rebuild their bridges to this cohort, to this group? And that's the critical thing, because the next Trump is coming. You know, the Republicans aren't going to give up on this strategy. It's been successful for them ever since Richard Nixon. They're going to keep going with this. And it gets worse every four years. It gets more and more outrageous. And the next Trump isn't going to be as stupid as this one. You know, this guy is a, 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 a terrible politician. Trump, I mean. I accept all that, Thomas. But can we really go back to the New Deal or even great society in the early part of the 21st century as labor is being undermined by AI, as yeah. every force in the global, globalized economy, for better or worse, is undermining uh, the foundations of the populist movement that you you write yeah. so sympathetically about in your book. Well, I think we're going to have to. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, yes, I think we're. I, I, my, the short answer is yes, we can. Uh, even though 
the jobs aren't necessarily going to be in factories anymore. A lot of them are going to be. Uh, they still can be organized and they still can have benefits and they, you know, they don't have to be, it doesn't, we don't always have to be engaged in a race to the bottom. Um, there is a place for unions and there is a place for the genius of the ordinary. I mean, there always will be, this is a democracy. God damn it. There's, there's got to be. So you say for what does America exist? Maybe we should just shut the universities down or certainly the, uh, the, the top ones. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. So there, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm hostile to ruling classes. You know that. I'm a populist to my bones. But that doesn't mean I'm hostile to learning. That would be ridiculous. But how should <laughs> the learning class reinvent itself? Does it need yeah. to acquire well, this, a sense of humor, a, a sense of historical perspective? That's a really good question. I would say the, the thing they need to learn is a little bit of politics. You know, Andrew, whenever you go through any of this literature, these, these people who denounce populism nowadays and say that it's, it's hostile to expertise and it's hostile to higher learning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what they never take into consideration is this larger problem that we've had for 20 years, uh, the problem of elite failure. We put these elites in charge and they screw things up and they do it again and again and again. And they're, all their different screw-ups have certain things in common. This is, by the way, a hobby of mine. It's like stamp collecting. I collect elite failures. So you, whether you're talking about the opio opioid crisis or the Iraq war or even the Vietnam war or the financial crisis in 2008, the subprime bubble, all of these different elite failures have certain things in common. And nobody studies this, and it is never described. And whenever you read one of these essays denouncing, you know, Trump voters or denouncing populism for populists for not getting it, they never even acknowledge that this is possible. Elite failure. It's like you got to listen to elites because they're elites for a reason. It's like, no. By the way, you know, there's a whole pedagogy out there called uh, uh, global populism studies, where you study different populist movements around the world, what they call populist movements, meaning Jair Bolsonaro, Marine Le Pen, what's his face in Hungary, you know, this kind Orban. of thing. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you talk about what they have in common and how dreadful they are. And there is no corresponding program to study why the, these meritocratic learning class elites keep screwing things up, but they do. Yeah, no, I think it's right. And I think the problem with the university is it's really an education in teaching these people how to love themselves and be convinced that they're right and everyone else is wrong. Certainly one way for the learning class to truly enlighten themselves is to read all of Thomas Frank's books, particularly the latest one, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Thomas, you're in Washington, D.C. in this weird pandemic year. What else are you reading to keep you sane? Well, I, I turned in this book uh, in February or January, and, and, and I declared myself done with uh, reading about populism and reading about, uh, you know, labor and that sort of thing. And so now I'm reading for pleasure, which is, which is new for me. And I'm reading uh, Norman Mailer's uh, classic World War II novel, The Naked and the Dead. And I just finished John Hersey's classic World War II novel, The War Lover. And before that, I read Erwin Shaw's classic World War II novel, The Young Lions. And then I've got a whole bunch of other ones that are still waiting for me. But I'm just doing the whole round of great World War II novels. I'm going to read The Thin Red Line. I'm going to, well, I've read Gravity's Rainbow many times, but I think I'll go in for another go at it. <laughs> You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. 
make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.